Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So you heard us discuss that after the State of the Union, I said that the Democratic Party has finished with all the stages of grief and they are now into acceptance. Joe Biden is their candidate. I thought that was rather clear from the analysis that came forth. If you want to tell me that Joe Biden sounded strong and vigorous at the State of the Union... Well, you can make that claim compared to the myriad of other speeches he gives before and after where he sounds like he's falling asleep. But that doesn't mean that the actual text of the State of the Union really brought a value. I think I could easily make that case bit by bit and piece by piece. But if you're arguing the strength of it, the presentation of it, well, then you're actually touting the man, not necessarily the policies. And if they're touting the man, I took it as, well, all right, They've come around. There's nobody else to trust. And then there was this polling that came out. And again, you know I'm not a big fan of polling, which talks about how the approval rating for Joe Biden has gone up. And I said, I think this is making my case. And then I saw that Noah Rothman over there at the corner at National Review writing Joe Biden's rebound is real. And I said, I think we're on to something. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Noah Rothman joins us right now. He is a columnist over at National Review. His latest book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, is available at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, now, there's a lot to the poll, and I don't know if we have how deep you want to dig or not, and that's totally fine. But you took at this, took a look at this, and said, yeah. That's accurate. There is a rebound for Joe Biden. What would you attribute it to or what makes you come to that conclusion? Well, this particular poll, an NPR PBS NewsHour our Marist poll, demonstrates a trend line. And it's a bit of an outlier because it suggests that Joe Biden's job approval rating among adults, just Americans, has rocketed up from uh, the doldrums in July of last year at 36% to 46% today, 10-point improvement, which is significant. It's better among registered voters, not just Americans who may or may not vote, but registered voters who have at least gone through the process of registering to vote, which suggests they're more likely to vote. Among them, he's at 49% job approval rating. It's usually the opposite. It's usually a broader array, array of Americans who may or may not vote are more supportive of a Democratic president than the universe of likely or registered voters. So this is interesting, and but it is a bit high compared to the rest of the polling landscape. But one of the things that jumped out at me in this survey was the degree to which that improvement is generated almost exclusively, not entirely, but almost entirely, by Democrats who have come to terms with the Biden presidency. The first year of Joe Biden's presidency, in maybe the first 18 months, um, Democrats, particularly progressive Democrats, were not sold on Joe Biden. After his first State of the Union, for example, it was Rashida Tlaib who delivered the um, response from the Working Families Party. She's a pretty prominent member. This year, Working Families had a response they always do, but it was a backbencher who did it. 
and that State of the Union address, which was so well received, uh, seems to me to be received well uh, retroactively, ret- retrospectively rather. It wasn't necessarily that Joe Biden was saying things that they like to hear, although that he was. To their minds, he was still striking too centrist of a tone. It is the, the understanding that Joe Biden represents their best electoral vehicle in ways they didn't really believe he did until the 2022 midterms when he and his party beat back historic environmental headwinds. So they've come to terms with the Biden presidency and Democrats are united around Joe Biden. And one of the things they said in this corner post is that's really formidable. Is that, you know, he, the character of Joe Biden is that he's this uh, sleepy, buffoonish, uh, gladhander who's just decrepit and just shouldn't occupy uh, high office. And all that may be true, but if he has the support of 90% of his party behind him, an incumbent president is a very hard target. And Republicans are just not that united. Republicans did not turn out in 2022 united behind all of their candidates. In fact, a lot of registered Republicans voted Democratic at the top of the ticket, even if they voted Republican in down-ballot races, and even for House races. Their candidates just simply were unpalatable to them. One of the reasons why the party underperformed is because Republicans weren't on board. And the ter- Republicans need to convince themselves of the mission that they have before them, which is that they can't cajole or blackmail their persuadable voters into pulling the lever for their candidates. They must be convinced. Democrats are being convinced by Joe Biden. Seems to be pretty effective. Republicans will need to engage in the very same process if they're going to be competitive in 24. Is it is it your view that that's why he made the the Kiev trip, which of course was long in in the planning to be there for the one year anniversary of the invasion uh, from from Russia? Um, Democrats seem very, very neocon on this subject. More arms, more weapons, more money. It's fine. It's important. Yeah, you, you got to put uh, the, the the flag of of Ukraine in in your, in your social media posts and in your bios, and and very much on. We got to destabilize Russia, destabilize Russia. Although there's there's no conversation of what the end game is, and that is, I believe, the biggest issue facing uh, Biden with the rest of the country. Tell people what happens at the end. But did Going to Kiev, was that about building up that base amongst the party, or was that, in your view, a larger show for NATO? I mean, call me naive, but I think it it had less to do with domestic politics and more to do with American national interests vis-a-vis the war in Europe. Um, Republicans, especially Republicans who are very plugged in to the extremely online right, need to come to terms with something that I don't think they're, they're willing to just yet, which is that this is not a partisan cause. This crosses across partisan lines. Americans, broadly, like to see their interests advanced. And Americans do define their interests, as Russia do, in opposition to Russian interests. And a rally around the flag effect is not atypical. It would be atypical not to have a rally around the flag effect. If the, if the partisan roles were reversed and a Republican president had made this trip, we wouldn't be hearing the end of it from Republicans who were so enthused by and supportive of, and in awe, in fact, of the audacity of an American president visiting a live war zone uh, in which you know, a major great power in opposition to American interests is, is killing civilians recklessly and, entire, and attempting to swallow up broad swaths of territory for the first time to this degree since 1945. This is not something that cuts against, that cuts against democratic interests. And Joe Biden, if, if there is a domestic effect to it, Joe Biden is playing it brilliantly. 
And Republicans need to be careful to not attack this as purely political, as, as purely self-interested, and indeed as a distraction from more important issues uh, domestically. I see a lot of Republicans talking about this as though um, going to Kiev precludes, for example, the, the administration's um, uh, focus on the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. That is a foolish narrative if Republicans advance this. The United States can and does two things at the same time and sometimes has to balance competing priorities. The idea that one priority precludes the other suggests that Republican governance would sacrifice one priority over the other, which is not what Americans want or should want. And Republicans need to be very careful that they don't invite that ugly comparison because it will cut against them in, in in an electoral sense. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, the book, The Rise of the, New, of the New Puritans, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, is available at Amazon.com. Um, in, in the Joe Biden conversation about Ukraine, I do hold uh, that if Joe Biden said the end result we're looking for is X, that would go a long way in getting more people on board, because I don't believe that the nation is fully on board, even if the nation uh, agrees that Putin is the aggressor and, and the bad guy. I think there is a rational conversation to be had about why all of a sudden supporting a nation under attack is a problem. I think that if you're engaging that just for the political purposes, it is odd and awkward. But I want to bring it back now to the politics that comes uh, from this when the party, the Democratic Party, is clearly in favor of what Joe Biden is doing, which is so strange because of the progressive wing of that party, which brings us back to this polling, which brings us to this idea of acceptance of Joe Biden. On that idea of acceptance, how much of that, in your view, is because they've taken a look at the options, in this case, Kamala Harris, the vice president, and Pete Buttigieg, the secretary of transportation, and they have said, yeah, those aren't options. How much of the rebound effect, in your view, comes from the default of there is no bench? Probably quite a lot of it. So in that AP poll did find that a significant decline from there was a majority uh, of Democrats who wanted to jettison Joe Biden from the ticket last year. And today it's uh, a minority. Uh, A majority of Democrats are comfortable with Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. And I think and and that dovetails with other polling, AP polling, which has found, well, if there's an alternative, tested alternatives among Democrats and nobody gets really uh, farther above uh, 10 percent, as far as I recall, or maybe even 5 percent. I don't exactly recall what the numbers were, but the the figures that did well were um, uh, figures like Bernie Sanders, uh, who, by the way, had a middling middling performance compared to Joe Biden. Joe Biden is by far the, 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 the biggest preference for Democratic voters, but he's not the most likely successor, just in inertia would lead you to conclude that Joe Biden's vice president, Kamala Harris, is most likely to uh, emerge his successor in the event there was some sort of abdication. And she you know, generates the support of like 3% of Democrats. They're not sold on Kamala Harris. So yeah, I think you're right, that there is a recognition that what comes after will be worse, more chaotic than what comes before. And I've always said this. I've said this from day one. They just the the fact of the matter is that a United States president uh, surrounds himself with people who owe their careers to his existence, who owe their careers, their jobs, their positions, their influence, their authority to the guy in the Oval Office. And when he's gone, that's gone too, which is why 
it's so rare to see a Democratic president, or see any president, abdicate the office, not just because they are usually, once you secure power, you like to maintain that power, but they're surrounded by people who won't let them go. And I've been saying this forever, that Joe Biden, even barring a catastrophic health event, they will prop him up on a horse like El Cid and ride him into victory (laughs) because there's nobody else behind him. Nobody else behind him. And that's just it. Uh, so yes, I think I have a lot to do with. There's nobody else uh, behind him. I want I want to stay on this just just for a moment, move it over to the Republican side and, and and get your view because you know, Trump entered the race early, trying to move everybody out of the race, scare people out of the race. And the person who stated most publicly, if Donald Trump gets into this race, I won't run. The former ambassador, Nikki Haley, is the first person to announce the challenge to Donald Trump. Then you have uh, the outlier in Vivek Ramaswamy, who does have money he can put into the race. I don't know if he'll be able to raise money to put into this race. You've got Senator Tim Scott, who is giving speeches in Iowa. Never mind the usual suspects who are warming up and just trying to figure out their jockeying position before someone like Ron DeSantis decides to get into this at the very, very end. Um, If Trump is not able to scare people out of running against him, how uphill is his climb, in your view, in a nomination in today's world post the midterm elections? Uh, That's an open question. Um, One of the things that's been interesting to hear from the people in Trump's orbit, unnamed figures talking to the Daily Beast, for example, who are close to the president is that they're beginning to think about this strategically, that they don't think that this is going to be a walk anymore, um, that they need a field of candidates that's larger than six or seven, for example, so that they can reproduce the conditions that led to Donald Trump's victory in 2016, in which this broad array of candidates break up the anti-Trump vote and the pro-Trump vote, whatever it is, 30 percent, 35 percent, is sufficient to win pluralities and winner-take-all states, or winner-take-most states, um, where the delegate count you know, devolves to the person who gets the most amount of votes. And by, and by attrition, you can win the, the nomination. A grueling, bruising fight, if everybody recalls 2016's primary season. It really wasn't fiat accompli until April of 16, which is a long time. It was right here in um, my beloved Indiana. It was Donald Trump right. who put Ted Cruz in the trunk. Cruz announced that Carly Fiorina was going to be his running mate. We haven't heard from Carly Fiorina yeah. again. Yeah, that was a scrambling, a traumatic performance. I'm, I'm sorry that you reminded me of it. But <laughs> there is some interest. I mean, it's, it, there is some, some thinking on the, on the Trump side that suggests they know this is going to be a bit of a fight. And we are seeing... a indications that it could be a field big enough to satisfy Donald Trump's ambitions. But there are also a little bit of, there's some nervous, frantic movements on the part of the president and the former president and the people around him in regards to um, Ron DeSantis, in part because, for according to the reporting, there's a whole lot of money on the sidelines, a lot of big dollar donors who are by no means convinced by Donald Trump, perhaps even hostile to Donald Trump, but willing to resign themselves to another nomination. But they're sitting back, and they're waiting to see what what Ron DeSantis does after Tallahassee concludes its legislative session. And that's going to be in a couple of months, at which point all indications are that Ron DeSantis will pull the trigger. And maybe you have a bit of a cascade effect if you have a lot of donors who get off the sidelines and say, well, listen, you know, we don't need you anymore. The the perception here is that Donald Trump can self-fund, but he didn't. He didn't last time. 
He hasn't yet. And we don't really know what, how liquid he is that he can commit those resources to this kind of a race. So he does need, and small dollar donors do tend to make up the, the bulk of contributions now as opposed to the big dollar donors who contribute to your PACs and what have you. Nevertheless, the sign of where the party is, and the sign of where the party is now, is that it's just biding its time. It's waiting to see who makes the big move. And obviously, Ron DeSantis is the biggest, is the biggest figure looming in this presidential race. No, um, Rothman. And I, suspe- I suspect, by the way, but that once we get closer to that point, um, that quite a few of these candidates who are toying with races now won't ma- will we'll pull a Kamala Harris, won't end up getting to the first primary and drawing any votes. Um, there's a real desire to see a coalesce, a, figures coalesce. On here. that? And the donor class is waiting for, for the primary states, the early primary states to vote, but I don't think it'll get that far. I agree with that. We'll discuss it more in the future when we have more time. Noah Rothman of National Review. Check out his work, nationalreview.com. Noah, thank you. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. The question before us is, did Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago actually tell people not to vote? And is that a violation of the law? Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. I mean, this is this is very people's court of us right now. This theme is nuts, by the way. It's so good. I mean, have you heard it in a while? Listen. Coming up after the People's Court, the A-Team. The golden age of TV, I tell you what. This is the mayor, Lori Lightfoot. As I said, is she telling people not to vote in this clip? Any vote, any vote coming on the side side for somebody not named Lightfoot is a vote for Chewy Garcia or Paul Bell. That's it. If you want them controlling your fate and your destiny, then stay home. Mm. Then don't vote. So if you want my opponents, Chewy Garcia or Paul Vallis, that's who's running for mayor in Chicago, to control your destiny, as, as if somehow she won't, uh, then don't vote. Not vote for them. Then don't vote. Don't vote unless it's for me. Oh, well, that could be a thing. That could be a real thing. And then she came out and said, eh, it's not what I meant. I was on Newsmax yesterday. And I'm like, well, if if saying that's not what you meant is actually saying that's exactly what I meant, but people are yelling at me about it, so I'll go out and say that's not what I meant. Well, then, sure, that's not what I meant. But, of course, that's what she meant. Nobody in Chicagoland thinks Lori Lightfoot is good at her job or competent. No one. Absolutely, positively, no one. Chicago is not a better place or a safer place than it was four years ago. It's just not. Now, does that mean that the people of Chicago will actually go the other way and vote for Chewy Garcia, uh, Congressman, or Paul Vallis? And, And I'm not versed enough on the Chicago politics to give you real differences, etc. Except that people will say, just give me anyone other than Lori Lightfoot. Is there enough of them? I don't know. I don't know. We're going to find out in a matter of weeks. This is Tony Katz today. 
So there are a lot of ways you can take Joe Biden's trip uh, to Ukraine. And you can argue that it was political. You can argue that it was actually valuable in terms of gearing up NATO nations and keeping a coalition together. We, we've got this investment going, like it or not. Uh, about supporting Ukraine against uh, Russian uh, incursion there. Uh, look, Russia started the thing. Anybody who listens to Vladimir Putin is like, oh, I trust him. I'm not saying you have to totally trust Vladimir Zelensky. I'm not making that argument. But trusting Vladimir Putin is is madness. Is madness. And as I've said many times, I don't have a problem funding uh, with, with weaponry. Uh, Ukraine, I certainly have an issue with putting U.S. troops there, but how about the idea of, okay, here is the plan, here is the purpose, and then here's when we are done, which is about drawing out, you know, here a plan of any kind. So there's a conversation about what we take from Biden's visit, but really it's, uh, it comes to a larger conversation about where we are with the U.S. military. Because there's a release from the U.S. Army, you know, they, they didn't hit their recruitment goals. And they're sending out pieces of their survey, oh, it, it, it's not because we've gone all social justice In the meantime, you've got the Air Force that's leaking the military records of Republicans running for the House or running for other positions. And they're like, oh, uh, it, was, it was just an accident. What in the world is going on? with our military. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It is good to be with you. Congressman Jim Banks joins us right now of the Indiana 3rd District. He's also a candidate for Senate in the state of Indiana. He's going to be part of that new committee on China. He also sits on armed services. Congressman, good to have you with us. Let's, I mean, I do want to get into this study from the U.S. Army. I want to get into how you're upset with them for sending out specific points of data, not the, the whole story, uh, what happened with the Air Force. But let's start with this visit from Joe Biden to Ukraine. Um, do you think this was a smart move vis-a-vis NATO, or do you just think this was just a, a, a political move for Joe Biden? If, if Joe Biden wanted to make a smart political move, he would have been in East Palestine, Ohio, like Donald Trump was yesterday. And on the heels of Donald Trump's visit, Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, decided he should finally get to Ohio to talk to the people who have been affected by the train derailment uh, in Ohio in the United States of America. Instead, Joe Biden pops up in Ukraine on the right on the eve of the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the war there of Russia's Invasion. America has invested, as you know, well over at this point, $100 billion in in weapons, military aid and humanitarian aid, propping up the government of Ukraine. And uh, at this point in time, as you know, I voted against the last large $40 billion supplemental spending bill to give money to Ukraine, not because I don't want Ukraine to beat Russia. I want them to. And I'm pro-Ukraine but because I recognize that we have big issues that deserve our attention in the United States of America, our border uh, being top of the list, the biggest humanitarian crisis in American history. And then you have a train derailment in Ohio. And yet the president of the United States of America has turned his focus once again to what's going on abroad and not what's going on at home. Shouldn't the conversation be about having your eyes in all the places you're the president of the United States? Is it really about one or the other? Can it be about both? Unfortunately, with this president, it is about one or the other. I mean, I, I've said this since the very beginning. America can't lead abroad when we're so weak at home. 
if, if it was a different era, if it was Ronald Reagan rebuilding America and making America strong again, or Donald Trump rebuilding the American economy and making America strong again, then we can help our allies around the world. But when we have such drastic issues here at home and a president who completely buries his head in the sand to our own domestic issues, what the heck is he doing on the other side of the world propping up uh, a, a support on a never-ending support to, to, to uh, solve problems in other countries when he isn't doing anything to solve problems right here at home. It shouldn't be either or. It should be do everything we can to restore America so that America is strong so it can support our allies abroad. But with this, with this president, it's all backwards. Talking to Congressman Jim Banks of the Indiana 3rd District. You serve on the House Armed Services Committee. And you're taking a look at uh, results from a survey that the United States Army did. As Daily Caller says, selectively disclosed results. And these results from their survey show that the Army's social justice policies and their COVID-19 vaccine mandate, and I'm quoting, did not cause the service to fall 25% below its recruiting target for fiscal year 22. You and uh, Representative Mike Waltz of Florida writing a letter addressed to the Army Secretary uh, and uh, saying that, well, is this cherry-picked data? Is this real data? Can we see the full data? What was the purpose of the letter? What is it that you're asking for? And what is it, if, the, if this is indeed true, that you think is not being shared truthfully by the Army? Yeah, wokeness is a cancer, and it's, it's going to eat America inside out if we don't do something uprooted. We see it in our schools. We see it being pushed in our federal government. And sadly, uh, and really unbelievably, we see wokeness being pushed on our troops and the military. So I, I've raised this alarm, and we see wokeness rear its head in different ways, whether it's the top admiral in the United States Navy telling sailors to read books about anti-Americanism, uh, which is you know the opposite of patriotism and, uh, and, and, and supporting our American values, which is why most men and women uh, or, or all men and women go and join the military and raise their right hand. To begin with, so the, the the army tries to act like wokeness isn't a thing and isn't having an effect. So they've raised the prospect of this study uh, to try to to downplay it, saying it's only affected three percent of recruitment in the military. Um, we've asked them to reveal the study. They keep talking about the study, but they won't reveal where the study came from. And what this is the, where, sir, I just need, I, I don't want to interrupt you too much. I apologize. This is where you get to the idea of cherry picking. You're not arguing that the study itself, in terms of its questions, was cherry picking. You're stating that the release from the Army is the cherry picking of data, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, sh- show, us, show us the whole study, and then we can argue about the study. But it's not just, wokeness doesn't just affect recruitment and retention. It affects morale. And when we, I have troops every day reach out to my office and talk about um, the, the, how, how different serving in the military is today versus 10 years ago or 20 years ago when they first uh, uh, joined the military. The, 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 the crusade for political causes rather than the importance of training to confront and defeat our enemies. And so it affects all of that, but it also affects the, the perception of our military abroad. If, if our military isn't, isn't projecting strength and instead is projecting wokeness, which is weakness, that's not a deterrent to China or Russia or Iran or North Korea 
or enemies. And it's a big reason the world has been turned upside down. It's more dangerous today on Joe Biden's watch than it ever was on any single day that Donald Trump was in the White House. The the danger that, that we discuss, is this a, an enemy that feels emboldened to advance, or is this actually part of a longer history of problems within the military that lead it to be something that engages these social justice issues. You know, I, I have often discussed, I don't want my military being a, uh, a place of proving ground of any kind of, of social or cultural impact. Uh, I discuss the fact that I want my U.S. military to kill the enemy and break things, as, as often uh, gets described. This is, a, is, is this, in your view, all because of Biden? Or is there a longer history that you can point to here? And what are your suggestions for fixing it? Yeah, it was it was prevalent when I joined the Navy under President and Commander in Chief Barack Obama. Donald Trump tried to tried to turn the ship and get the military back focused on what it should be focused on. But I'll tell you, on January 20th of 2021, the day that Joe Biden entered the White House, one of his first directives was a stand down to the military to look into um, uh, domestic terrorism in the ranks and issues like that and 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 force trainings on our troops that had a political nature to it and you know our founding fathers tony they understood that the military should be apolitical not a political training ground not a place to indoctrinate our troops but the importance of the military being apolitical, not focused on politics or elections or political ideologies, how important that was. I'd say more than ever before, the two years that Joe Biden has been in the White House, he's done more to decimate that apolitical nature than any president that we've ever had before. Talking to Congressman Jim Banks of the Indiana 3rd District, reaching out to the U.S. Army, wanting the full uh, parts of the study, the study that states it was not social justice policies nor COVID-19 uh, that led to a serv- led to the service to fall 25% below its recruiting target for fiscal year 2022. Have they told you, sir, what the plan is to get back up to their target numbers? How are they going to make up the people that did not uh, enlist? What are they telling you is their plan? Are they sharing that with you? Yeah, they're, they're not. But they are going to come before the subcommittee that I chair, the Military Personnel Subcommittee, over the next few weeks, and we're going to demand those answers on camera, under oath, and ask them, what is their plan? I mean, they, remember, this is the same, these are the same military leaders and the president who, who flushed out thousands of troops for not taking a politi- highly politicized COVID-19 vaccine. So they, 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 uh, they, they dropped around 8,000, I think, troops um, out, of, out of the military, didn't take the vaccine, and then they have large recruitment issues. So I don't know how you can, I don't know how you, anybody could believe that that doesn't have something to do with retention and recruitment of our military when when you see the highly political actions of this administration that many of our troops are reaching out to me regularly to complain about. I move it over to the Air Force, where we now see that they leaked information on 11 individuals 
11 different individuals. The Air Force confirming to Fox News that an internal audit determined that there was this unauthorized release between October of 2021 through October of 2022. You were a very large supporter, and I believe still are, of Jennifer Ruth Green uh, in the 1st District of Indiana, who was running as a Republican against the Democrat, the incumbent Frank Mervan. Her military records were leaked Uh, and then printed in the pages uh, of Politico as part of a story, including a conversation of a sexual assault that she did not want public. Now you know that your colleagues, Representative Don Bacon, Zach Nunn, Don Bacon's of Nebraska, Zach Nunn of Iowa, amongst those whose information was leaked, they want to know what's happened. I want to know, is anybody calling for uh, people to be held accountable? Is the U.S. Air Force going to start firing people? Yeah, this is really a bombshell story. I mean, we first became aware of it because the release of Jennifer Ruth Green's military records released sensitive information that was used to attack her and her campaign. What we didn't know at the time is that there were 10 other Republicans whose informa- private informa- military records and information were released at the same time as well. So the big question about this, Tony, is this a Watergate-like scandal. But what we know is that the DCCC, which is a super PAC that's set up by the Democrats and a opposition research firm that is is owned by the Democrats that supports the Democrats. Did they hack into the Air Force's records? Did they did they somehow illegally obtain these documents? We know that the mistakes were made by the Air Force, but did the Democrats break the law in a Watergate like way to obtain these records to attack Republican veterans. That's a scandal that should be getting a lot more attention by the mainstream media than what it is. They're, they're trying to sweep it under the rug because they know it's explosive and could lead, lead down a trail. I think of um, le- less about the Air Force and more about whether or not the Democrats um, illegally uh, hacked into records of veterans. That, that's a scandal that should be getting a lot more attention. As the Air Force has described this, it was America, American Bridge 21st Century, which is a liberal super PAC, and a researcher by the name of Abraham Payton, who when I first heard the name, sir, I thought it was a fake name. I thought they made it up completely. I don't know why it hit me. It's just an, a name like that, but it did. Um, and they simply asked for the, the information, and the Air Force failed to get the uh, consent of the members of Congress or or candidates in question. And that's how the Air Force is saying it happened. Uh, You make you feel good that the United States military is that sloppy? No, that doesn't make me feel good at all. I mean, remember, I I served in the military, too. And, you know, no no veteran should ever have to worry that their private military records are going to be released, especially to be used against them. And, you know, this was a we again we, we found out about it because of the way the Democrats uh, manipulated that the the details of Jennifer Ruth Green's uh, and and uh, her records to to attack her in a campaign. By by the way, I made this case to the Air Force back before Election Day that we, Republicans were running uh, strong around the country trying to win back the majority, and uh, we ended up having a four seat majority, you know, there could have been a scenario where the majority could have come down to Jennifer Ruth Green's race in the first district of Indiana and the air force, because of their negligence, uh, at best, uh, uh, whether it was the worst case scenario of, of manipulation by political operatives working with someone at the air force to release the, release these records or hacking into these records. It could have, 
that that one race could have swung the majority back and forth between Republicans or Democrats and had a big effect on the future of this country. So there has to be accountability for those who either broke the law or made the mistakes that led to this. Congressman Jim Banks of the Indiana 3rd District, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, We'll talk more, especially as uh, your committee there on China starts to take hold. Congressman, thank you. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. The governor of West Virginia ready to sign a concealed campus carry bill. Not just quickly, but in seconds. Jim Justice is the governor of West Virginia. All right, if I remember right, he was a Republican who became a Democrat who became a Republican, or was he just a Democrat who became a Republican? I don't don't remember which way it went. I think it went the first way. He said that he'll sign the bill called the Campus Self-Defense Act in seconds once once it reaches his desk. And here's the quote. When this bill comes to me, it won't be it won't be with me just a matter of seconds because I'll sign it. God forbid it may very well be that we got somebody on that campus that has a firearm and something bad starts to happen and everything. It may save a bunch of lives. Maybe. Justice saying that he believes in the Second Amendment and that people who have firearms and carry permits are law-abiding good people. Even if you just have constitutional carry, you're also a law-abiding good person. So that's the argument. The argument is, why aren't there more people who are able to protect and defend themselves than the ones that they love? Why are we opposed to this? I don't think we should be opposed to this at all. This is known as Senate Bill 10, or the Campus Self-Defense Act. I'm very curious if this leads to other states moving down this line. Is this about state-run schools, or is this about any school within the state boundaries? There are questions here. It's a very interesting take, and it's proactive, and I like that too just from what I know about it. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.